Welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Jan Orman. In this podcast series, we've invited people we know and admire to tell you their stories. My name's Paula Kotovich. So my name is Craig Sample. Evie Rader. Molly Shorthouse. My name's Percy Knight. I was a career detective in the New South Wales Police Force. I identify as a trans woman. I am a remote doctor in East Arnhem Land. These are people who may not have made the headlines, but whose stories are just as worthy of your attention as those you hear about in the media. Living with cancer. I was struggling with PTSD for eight or nine years. I just had a lot of fear. I was well and truly burnt out. These are people who have flourished and met life's challenges while managing their social and emotional well-being. Uh, my career now uh, is as a mental health advocate and educator. I led a team that negotiated a $22 million native title. It definitely taught me in my life a lot of persistence and gave me a lot of strength. We're hoping you'll find something in these stories to inspire you, whatever your situation right now. Craig Semple is a big, fit guy with tattooed arms, a clear, steady gaze and a warm handshake. When you first meet him, it's hard to imagine a man like Craig having any mental health problems. I'll leave it to Craig to tell you that story, but it's a long story and we've broken it into two parts. Please come back and listen to the second half of the story when you've heard this one. So my name is Craig Sample. I live in Lake Macquarie up near Newcastle. My interests are surfing. I'm an avid fisherman and I love exercise. In a previous life, I was a career detective in the New South Wales Police Force. It's a 25 year career, which ended as a result of a workplace psychological injury. Uh, I retired officially in 2013 uh, at the rank of detective sergeant. Uh, my career now, uh, is as a mental health advocate and educator. Uh, so I do a lot of work as a contractor. I do work through my own business and I, and I deliver mental health first aid courses and other mental health education packages. Uh, as a child, I was brought up in Newcastle. I was, I was raised in a really industrial political family. My pop, who was my role model in life, uh, he was the president of the Ironworkers Union up in the Hunter region back then. And uh, so we had a, we had a, I had a huge upbringing with with unions and and politics and all that sort of stuff, which was amazing. But you know my, my social standing, well my family's social standing back in those days was um, probably lower middle class. Um, you know my parents did it pretty tough to to get us through to make ends meet. They put us through my, my, myself and my brother and my sister uh, through uh, private education, which they struggled financially to do, but they did it. Um, but all in all, my 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 childhood, I was one of those kids because I was timid. I, I sort of kept my head down, tried not to draw attention to myself. Um, I my my pleasures in my life as a child were we we were brought up on at Lake Macquarie on all this bushland and it fronted all this beautiful natural waterfront down near Greenpoint and. I just all the, the joys of my childhood were strapping my fishing rod or my spear gun to my bicycle with my mates and heading down the lake and we'd just spend the whole day down there fishing and 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 doing all the stuff that young boys do. Yeah, I joined the police force in uh, 1988. Um, I had a previous job just before after I left school which was as a labourer at the BHP Steelworks in Newcastle. 
Um, so that gave me a bit of an appreciation for what hot, hard, dirty work was all about. I went into the, the uh, police force and uh, we only had 12 weeks of training back in those days, so three months. And and then they gave us a gun and a badge and a set of handcuffs and threw us out into the big wide world. So when I joined, I was uh, when I graduated, I'd, I'd only just turned 19. So I was the youngest cop in the police force when I, when I graduated. So my first posting after I was uh, graduated from the, the police academy was in the inner city of Sydney at Redfern. Um, and look, back in the late 80s and, and 90s, Redfern was a pretty volatile patrol to work in um, for a whole range of uh, reasons. But, um, you know, we had riots every week and, and lots of other uh, stuff. So there was a lot of violence and drugs and stuff like that. A um, bit of context, as a, as a young man, I, I was quite timid by nature. Um, my fight flight response in those days was only flight. I didn't really have a fight response. Um, but then joining a, an occupation where you're expected to run towards trouble was a big thing for me to confront. Um, and, and I guess through a process of constant ex- deliberate exposure to danger, sort of built up a bit of re- resilience to fear. Um, and, I, and I built a lot of confidence up around myself with, uh, with, with actually being able to tackle dangerous situa- situations. So that was a big thing. So I spent five years at Redfern. About three years of my career, I discovered I had a real passion and ability for investigative work. Um, so I became, I started my career as a detective. Um, you know, the, the police force I joined in the 80s uh, was, it had a pretty loose culture. There was a lot of heavy drinking and all that sort of stuff. We didn't have many psychological services. Um, you know, this is way before the Police Royal Commission. There was, there was the, the, the context of that whole environment was, was, was quite amazing to look back on. Um, but I sort of fell into that culture really easily. I was having a really, really good time, um, probably drinking way too much and all that sort of stuff. And I think I got about in about five-year mark in my career where I, I, I stopped for the first time and actually started to look in a little bit at where I was and where I was going. And I realised that if I, if I stayed in the city too much longer, I was either going to end up unwell from, from all the drinking or end up in trouble somewhere along the line. So... I made my first conscious decision to to get out of the city and I took a, a one-man detective's position at a little town called Hay in southwest New South Wales in the Riverina. It's an outback town. It's, it's quite isolated, only 3,000 people. Um, but it's probably one of the best things I did because working in a small country town taught me a lot about self-reliance. You know, My first murder that I, that I was actually in charge of, I was only 24 at the time, um, I still was not even a qualified detective at that point. And, you know, if that murder had happened in the city, senior detectives would have taken it over and I probably would have been making coffees all day. But out there, I was it. I had to pick the ball up and I had to run with it as best I could. So I learned a lot through that process. So I spent three years there at Hay um, and then I transferred from Hay to Wagga Wagga. And in the six years at Wagga, I spent a, a couple of years in a drug squad. I had a real, real passion for drug work that I developed when I was in, in the city, in Sydney. Um, so, so I continued on with that. Um, and then over the, the course of those six years, got to the point where it was time to move again. So I took a transfer to um, the north coast of New South Wales to Grafton. And, uh, and then I, from Grafton, three years later, I transferred to Coffs Harbour. I finished my career there in uh, 2012. So over the course of my career, those, those 25 years, there was a huge 
transition in the in the young man that I was when I joined this this timid kid to the type of person I was by the time I finished my career. Um, you know, I think the first time I, I really, if, if I look back in hindsight, where I I guess things weren't travelling too well. My brother followed me into the police force 10 years after I joined and he was um, stabbed by a, a drug dealer uh, on the street two weeks after his graduation and his partner was stabbed as well and died on the street next to him. And And I remember, I'll, I'll look back in hindsight now and, and I used to always think, well, this happened to my brother. You know, it's, it's not something that's happened to me. It doesn't It's not affecting me. But in fact, I look back and I remember clearly making the decision uh, around that time when he got released from hospital that, okay, I can't do anything about what's happened to the person who hurt my brother. Um, he nearly lost his life. But I can do something about drug dealing in general because I'm good at it. So I really became quite focused. It was a personal aspect to my work from that point on. And I guess I became a little bit manic in the way I was doing my job back then with in, in terms of my passion um, for that sort of drug investigation. So I sort of started to take over my life a lot with that sort of work and my family were pushed to the side. It's funny how you look back and you think, well, I didn't think that really affected me, but it did, okay? And there was a lot of things that contributed to it. Guilt, which is a huge, a huge... Uh, negative emotion that you can carry around with for a long time. I actually blame myself a lot for the fact my brother was stabbed because I had encouraged him to join the police force, you know, and it's surprising how those things can eat away at you and, and get at you over a period of time. But, I, you know, I sort of just delved into my work. I used that as my focus and, and I just kept punching on with it. Um, as I, the more, the more stuff that I was exposed to, you know, I, I guess it eats away at you a little bit at a time. Um, it was hard for me to be able to identify that, um, but you know, it, it wasn't. It wasn't probably until uh, my my experiences up on the north coast where it all really came to a head. But in those intervening years, you know, there was a lot of drinking. That was one of my main coping strategies. In my work. It was my social life. You know, and was able to, you know, go out and do some sort of dramatic drug raid and then get the boys together and we would just go out drinking and and celebrating and all that sort of stuff, which was. A good way to counteract all the negative stuff we we're exposed to all the time is that we're doing something that we thought was really positive and fun. Um, looking back in hindsight, it had its benefits, but also had some negative aspects, particularly with relationships. So yeah, it caused a lot of strain. Um, my drinking, the social life with the with uh, with my workmates, the fact that I was getting called out at all hours. Um, you know, I'd miss Christmas days and all that sort of stuff because of the things that I was getting called out to and. Um, yeah, there was really no sort of break away from it. So, uh, so I guess for the first 16 years of my career, I'd seen a lot of stuff. You know, saw some some pretty horrific stuff over that period of time. But always found ways to deal with it. You know, as cops and as emergency services workers, we become so good at suppressing all those natural emotions that you would expect to experience. That's something that's really traumatic. Um, you know, the grief that people experience when they've lost a loved one, and and all the the actual visual and horrors that you're actually exposed to. But I always seemed to be able to push through it and focus on my job, which I, I thought I was pretty good at. But 16 years in my career, um, there was a homicide that occurred that changed my life forever. 
This particular homicide up on the north coast, it was in, uh, it was on a farmhouse in the middle of Canefields, pretty isolated. Rather than being called down to it by another uni- uniform cop, I was the, f- the first one there. And I knew something bad had happened in the house, but I didn't know exactly what. So I knew I had to get in there and make sure no one needed any medical help. That was my first priority. Second one was clear the house for danger for the other cops that would come in and do their work after me. So on my own, I went to the back of the house, took out my firearm, went through a mental process of psyching myself up that if I was confronted with a threat once I walked through that door that I wouldn't hesitate to pull the trigger. I could end up dead. So that whole mental process fired up my fight-flight response, my adrenal system. And unbeknown to me, uh, at that point in time, we weren't given much education about PTSD and depression in those days, so I wasn't really aware of a lot of the risk factors that can predispose you to developing it. So what happened when I went through that house, clearing it room by room at gunpoint, by the time I was exposed to the worst of the trauma uh, in, in that house, my system was so fired up with adrenaline that that adrenal response served to sort of scramble away my brain processed a lot of the ex- things I was experiencing, you know, adrenaline, it just it just gets everything going and everything fired up. My, my colours become brighter. Um, my sense of hearing, touch, smell, everything just gets turned up to full volume. So when that happens, you know, the, if you're exposed to something that's really, really bad, that's obviously going to really burn in. Um, so I wasn't really aware of it at the time, but I, I felt something different when I was in that house. And then... You know, we ran a four-week investigation. I was in charge of that murder and we got the baddie in the end, put him in handcuffs and everything was great there. But about two weeks after that, I started having really bad nightmares and I knew that they were to do with that homicide because of the theme of them. But there were also aspects of other homicides that I've been to that were intermixed with, with those nightmares as well. And when I'm talking about nightmares in the context of PTSD, it's not like a bad dream. Okay, it's it's like you wake up in the middle of the night at the point where you believe you're about to die. So it's really, really terrifying. And the nightmares were recurrent. They kept going for a number of weeks, and and I, it was probably the first time where I could I clearly knew there was something wrong. Okay, I can look back in hindsight and maybe point out some identifiers from earlier on in my career, but this was the first point where I could clearly say something was was not right. As much as we were given no training about mental illness in the police force in my generation, I did know that if you start having nightmares about things you've gone to in your job, then something's wrong. So I pretty much had two choices at that point. One of, it was, one of those choices was declare it to my employer, to my workmates, go and get some help for it. And the, the other choice was to keep a secret. I chose to keep a secret. And there was a number of reasons for that. Firstly, we had workplace culture in those days that you had to be tough enough to take everything. So that sort of implied to me if I actually put my hand up and said that I was mentally unwell, that I'd sort of failed in that endeavour. Um, another barrier was the fact that I had a reputation amongst my colleagues as being one of the tough guys. And I sort of loved that reputation. It fed my ego. Um, so that became a barrier. I didn't want anyone to think, think that I was weak. But probably the biggest barrier to me actually putting my hand up and getting help at that earliest opportunity was the fact that, um, you know, other cops that I'd seen 
uh, declare mental health problems before me had been discharged from the police force. And I loved my job so much, I didn't want to see that happen to me. So I thought to myself, no one ever dies of a nightmare, so just suck those ones up, go to work every day and just get on with it, don't tell anyone. I didn't tell my wife, I didn't tell my um, closest mates, told no one, kept it locked up. So uh, unfortunately for me, there's about a dozen other symptoms of PTSD as well as nightmares, and because I wasn't aware of those things, they sort of started to develop and creep into my life through the back door, and they cause absolute chaos uh, to my family, my relationships, my work, the whole lot. Some of those things I experienced over the, the next uh, eight years that I battled PTSD in secret uh, were um, hypervigilance, probably one of the biggest ones. So I'd wake up in the middle of the night where I would either be from a nightmare or believing I heard a noise um, and I would go into a state of high alert. Uh, my, my danger response would go from green straight to red and and I wouldn't be able to settle. So I used to keep a billy truncheon under my bed mattress and I'd get it out and I'd patrol my house and clear it of danger while my family was sleeping. Sometimes I still wouldn't be satisfied and I'd go out and do the same in my backyard and my front yard and on a few occasions I even walked up and down the street before I was satisfied when my family was safe. Then I'd go back to bed and I'd try to go to sleep and it was near impossible after doing that sort of stuff. So I developed chronic sleep problems and that was that's one of the biggest things I, I, I think is a clear indicator of so many mental illnesses is, is people having difficulty with their sleep, depression, anxiety, PTSD. So the problem with my sleep was um, because of this high state of arousal all the time, I just couldn't, I'd go to sleep okay, usually from drinking, and I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I'd just be in a high state of readiness. And and uh, for the next eight years, I lived on somewhere between two and five hours sleep a night, and it's not really sustainable. Some of the other things I experienced with PTSD for those years were um, the fact that I was angry and irritable a lot. Um, there was a lot of negative emotions that I was that I'd tap into really easily. Startle response was really a big thing. Um, emotional numbness was one of the things that I didn't find out until years later. But but I, I look back and I had an enormous amount of emotional numbness. I couldn't I couldn't tap into normal positive feelings like love, which then obviously caused problems at home with with the relationship with my wife. Um, I really didn't feel plugged into the world around me a lot. I used to think I was going crazy, that, think that, that all the things that used to run through my head just weren't thoughts of a normal person. Um, so there was, there was a whole lot of all these different symptoms that were causing a massive amount of problems with relationships and the rest of it. And, you know, because I kept it secret, um, you know, those of us who, who don't declare mental health problems when we should, we turn to our own coping strategies. And for me... You know, there was one that was already readily available to me is my drinking. Okay, alcohol is a huge thing for us. Alcohol would numb me out at the end of a shift. Um, it would provide some escape. But the downsides of it were that, okay, drinking a lot is not good for your physical health, but it's also a depressant. So if you're developing mental health problems like I was, then the last thing you need to add to your system is a depressant like alcohol. So it was a negative coping strategy, obviously. But the, probably the biggest coping strategy I used to try and battle through uh, the symptoms of PTSD as I know them now was actually turning to my work. And, and, and my work provided an escape and distraction as well. 
and the other thing my work was able to to, um, to provide for me, I was doing a lot of work with drug investigation and, and outlaw motorcycle gangs. Um, I could tap into adrenaline whenever I wanted, you know, I could look for excitement in the work that I was doing. And the adrenaline that I was able to tap into, I sort of became quite addicted to it. So so basically I could go to work and and go out and, and execute a drug raid and I always make sure that I was one first through the door with a sledgehammer. I always wanted to be exposed to the most danger I possibly could to get that adrenal response. And um, and and so and that's what I do. I just go to work and I'd look for those those high risks and 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 danger. And the more adrenaline that I actually got, the more I needed to sustain the, the high moods that I had. The other way I was able to get a hit of adrenaline as well was by maintaining intentionally maintaining um, high levels of stress. And and the way I do that is I plan my investigations. Uh, I pick a target and I would. You know, most of the time those those investigations would be minimally resourced, and I'll make sure there's heaps of risk in it, and I'll make sure that the goals of those investigations were almost unachievable. So I was always under the pump, and then I'd finish one of those jobs, and I go, "Wow, that's the best investigation I've ever run. I'm so happy." But then I need something bigger, and the next one would have to be bigger again. So I was this constant quest just to keep those really high levels of stimulation going all the time to counteract what was happening to me in secret over those years. And um, unfortunately for me, because I didn't understand how stress works and how it can be really, really quite toxic, um, I, I didn't realise what I was actually doing to myself. Until the last investigation I ran, which was into an outlaw motorcycle gang up on the north coast, and they were quite a powerful, uh, dangerous group of people. And I sort of had become quite manic with my work up until that point, and I went to my commander and I said to him, you know, instead of just running out and just doing, picking out two or three of these guys that we normally do and working on the main antagonist, this time I'm just going to run an investigation on the whole bikey gang and lock, all, lock up all of them, like all of them, 25 members. So <clears throat> it was one of those things where once again just got to that really pinnacle point where I just needed to maintain those high stress levels. So we only had two other detectives working with me on it at the time. We ran that job for 18 months straight. There was a lot of physical danger in it, a lot of personal danger. We had phones tapped. We had uh, listening devices in cars and houses. We had undercover operatives buying drugs for us. When the, drug, the raids had to happen, I'd be the first through the door. Got in a few physical fights with these different different guys at different times. So it was a huge amount of um, huge amount of stress and stimulation involved in it. Pretty much the last nine months of that job, because I ran it, um, I was in, in, in command of it, uh, I didn't have any days off. Even on my rostered days off, I would still be on the phones, making calls, making decisions. So basically, uh, for that, that last nine months, not many days off, not much sleep, lots of high pressure. Then we got to the end of the, the investigation and those almost unachievable goals that we set ourselves became achievable. We got all the evidence we needed to lock up 20 of these, these motorcycle gang members and shut down um, at that period of time, shut down that, that chapter. So we went out, organised 150 cops. We did all the raids and all that sort of stuff. And it was one of the greatest achievements in my career. But the, I remember the day that we actually had all these bikies overflowing in the, in the dock in the, in the police charge room. I was, I was actually uh, I was, I was quite taken aback by the fact that 
the normal levels of euphoria that I would ne- normally feel at the end of investigation, they weren't there on this particular day. <clears throat> I just could not tap into any positive emotions about what we just achieved at all. And it really scared me. I had no idea what had happened. And over the next four weeks, I, I sort of deteriorated my mood like deteriorated so rapidly that I had no answers for it. I didn't know what was going on. Um, it got to the point where over that four weeks, like all the strategies I used to use, the adrenaline from my work, the alcohol, all that sort of stuff, they didn't work for me anymore. And in fact, they were actually making me worse to the point where, you know, four weeks after that, those raids and we finished that job, I remember I was laying awake at night, all night, in, in panic, and I had this out-of-control newsreel going through my head of all the things I'd seen and experienced in the cops. It all just came flashing back. And um, it was probably at that point where I realised, Craig, you've actually lost control of this whole situation. Like, you've, you've, you can, there's nothing more you can do about this. You, need, you actually need to do something, get help. So the first thing I did was uh, I remember sitting at my desk in my office, supposed to be typing out a statement for a court case, and I accessed the Black Dog Institute's website. And I found a self-test tool up on, on the um, toolbar there and, and I went and I had a look at some stuff on PTSD but then I did the, then I did the, the self-test on, on PTSD and also on, on major depression and my scores came back really high. So I made that decision from that moment on, right, I reach out through AAP, get a, a, an appointment with a clinician I did that. And I was lucky enough to get a really good cl- clinician who... Um, who told me some things I probably didn't want to hear. Um, she told me that my levels of uh, trauma, anxiety um, and, and major depressive disorder were really, really high. And I remember going home and I, I used to cook most of the dinners at my place and I was telling my wife about that appointment that I'd had and what I'd been told. And, you know, I, just, I was chatting away in one minute and then the next I just broke down and started bawling my eyes out. I couldn't stop. I was over the kitchen bench, couldn't function, and I couldn't stop crying for a couple of hours, and I got put to bed in that condition that night. I just had a massive mental breakdown. The next morning, because um, I was so busted up, I couldn't go to work, so I called up my, my workplace and I went off sick, and I went off sick and told them that I actually had the flu. So I just had this massive mental breakdown in front of my whole family, and I still couldn't declare it to my workmates. Next day, I went off sick with the flu again. And my direct supervisor was a good mate of mine. He he knew that Craig Sample, no matter whether he was dying of pneumonia, he would be at his desk. And I'd just gone off sick twice with the flu. No contact. So he knew something was wrong. So he, he organised a meet with me. And over a coffee, I eventually told him that I just had this massive mental breakdown and I couldn't come to work. And eventually he talked me into going to the doctor and take some time off. I was really reluctant. I still, I just did not want to give in. So I went to the doctor and, um, and my GP, fantastic uh, clinician, uh, got his head right around mental health issues. And, uh, and he gave me time off and basically I, I never stepped foot in a police station again as an operational policeman. I was just way too broken. So that's the first part of the story. 
we'll stop there and let you take a breath. If the first half of Craig's story left you feeling grim, listen now to the best part. Craig got better. He found ways to overcome his trauma and he turned a breakdown into a breakthrough. Thank you for listening. If there's been anything in this podcast that you found distressing, don't forget to talk to your usual support person or call Lifeline on 131114. And if you'd like to hear more in the Being Well podcast series, you can find it on the Black Dog Institute website.